welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Now it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and Joseph also to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary who was betrothed to him, being great with child. While they were there, She gave birth. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, English Revised Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time health consultant. He buys the cough drops we keep in the studio for people to use during recording. Today on Anchored by Truth, As we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, we want to continue our series where we focus on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And we want to continue listening to Crystal Sea Book's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, The Frost Lion. Today we're coming to part three of the poem, where the action starts to get a little more intense. Is that a fair statement, R.D.? I think so. Now, for any listeners who weren't able to be with us for our last couple of episodes of Anchored by Truth, we should tell them that The Golden Tree, The Frost Lion, is a poem that is written in the style of some of the classic Christmas stories. It was also written using the model of the old-time movie serials that they used to play when I was a kid. You'd go to the theater on Saturday afternoons, and before the movie, they would give you the latest installment of some ongoing saga. And each episode of this serial, that again preceded the actual movie, would end with the heroes or the heroines of that story left in a precarious position. So next week, you'd have to come back to the theater and plunk down another quarter or two and see if Pauline got saved from the train that was coming down the track. So to get us ready for listening to part three of The Frost Line, listeners need to know that this epic poem is all about a group of small koala bears who live in a valley in the Arctic. And a group of these bears' ancestors had settled in this valley many generations ago because at the center of the valley is a golden tree that transforms the valley into a place where the bears can live and thrive. And they've been there for quite a while, but now in the current Christmas season for the village that's around the golden tree, an unexpected challenge has come to them. It's come to the valley, the tree, and their lives. Two of the town's teenage bears, the girl bear named Coest and an older teenage boy bear named Copal, had gone to a hill near their town to look at the northern lights. Well, while they were on the hill, they saw a new strange bear staggering through the snow. And at first, they weren't sure if this new bear posed a danger, but since the new bear was so close to death, they wound up bringing him back to Coest's home 
where Coet's mother, who is called Coray, began attending to the bear. But they still don't know anything about the new bear. Where did the new bear come from? Why is he here? And what does this strange new bear want? All right then, let's continue with the story. Here's part three of Crystal Sea Book's Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, The Frost Lion. My name is Roleb. From down under I came. As your ancestors did long ago. Your brave forebears and mine were the same before yours journeyed to the snow. But what you don't know, what was hidden from you, the first group to attempt the quest had one who turned back, who returned to his home. There was one who failed the test. He told the tale of a bleak, barren land with fierce beasts that roamed everywhere and so blocked the quest they had launched to the home of the great white bear. A quest begun with a vision in the night given to one named Roham who was told to leave his tribe and place and journey to a promised land. Just at that moment, a stir in the house made Coray leave the bedside. She heard new voices greet her child bears, and with great relief she sighed. For now into the room entered sturdy Kodan, accompanied by cheery Kojan. They looked at Coray, then to the soft bed, where Roleb looked weak and drawn. Coray briefly recounted the tale and answered a question or two, then said to Roleb, but surely his tribe wondered about the rest of the group. When asked what happened to the other bears, the one who had failed the test said he did not know. He was not sure, for he had been separated from the rest. But later in life, when very near death, he admitted to his youngest son that before he turned back, he had seen a glow a glimmer that beckoned him come. Like him, the other bears saw the light in the sky. To the north that light did lead, but his faith gave out, and he turned away. To the south he chose to proceed. Kojan's round face lost its usual smile, replaced by a sorrowful frown. The glow those bears saw was the golden tree that stands at the center of our town. The one who turned back was achingly close to a treasure beyond compare. For those who continued found life and peace and the joy in this world that is rare. That bear that turned back, Herleb resumed, was my ancestor of long ago. But passing generations made this tale a legend. That it was true, we had no way to know. As generations passed, our tribe lost its faith and our knowledge of the great white bear. But a few held out. We persisted in the hope that it was possible to find his lair. Kopal has told us you were not alone, said Kodan, concern in his voice. 
We can see by your state, your strength is gone. To find help was your only choice. Verleb replied, I had finally decided to start a quest to see if I might find the light. I journeyed with another, a bear of strong faith, but I lost him as we struggled in the night. I beg you to find him. He must be close. I could do little more than creep. I was weak, barely able to stand, and the blanket of snow was deep. All that is true, said a sober Kojan. But hours or days have now passed, and we have no idea of the direction you took. The range to be searched is vast. Okay, as the old-timers, like me, right, used to say, the plot continues to thicken. The bears who live near the golden tree have found out that they have distant relatives who don't know about the golden tree or even the great white bear. But a couple who still did believe in the great white bear decided to attempt the quest that others had tried long ago. But now their quest is in danger because one of them has almost died and the other is lost in a vast arctic wilderness a wasteland for anyone who's not near the tree. Right. And, you know, sometimes those of us who live in today's postmodern culture, we can feel that way. We can feel like we are living in a wilderness that has lost sight of our true creator. You know, and that's why it's such a good idea for mature believers to listen to or to read stories to their kids or grandkids because they can introduce their kids or grandkids to the real struggles that this life contains and to help them prepare to be overcomers. And of course, the best strategy for being an overcomer in our postmodern culture is to become so familiar with the truth, especially the truth about the Bible and God, that the lies and the deception that surround them become immediately identifiable. And of course, that's why we do Anchored by Truth to remind people that the Bible, in the words of Psalm 46, is a, quote, very present help in time of trouble, unquote. But people aren't likely to turn to the Bible to help them in times of trouble if they aren't confident that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. So that's why we focus on using evidence and logic to demonstrate that we have very good reasons for believing that the Bible is the very Word of God. Yes. Everybody at some point in their life is going to ask the question, why am I here? It's one of the most obvious questions that arises from the human experience. But whether most people realize it or not, the answer to that question is inexorably tied to three other questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, does he communicate with his people? Or, said differently, is the Bible the word of God? And if there is a God, and the Bible is his word, can I learn what I need about my life, my needs, and my purpose by studying the Bible? Well, of course, here at Anchored by Truth, we think that the answer to all three of those questions is a resounding yes. But we would quickly admit that unless people are convinced that the Bible is more than just an aggregated collection of fairy tale and myth, that those people are very unlikely to find the Bible relevant to their lives. So that's why we think it's so important for people to study the Bible. 
so that they can discover the answers to those questions for themselves, and so they can find out that the Bible really is not just an ancient book passed down from generation to generation, but it's a book that is very relevant to the lives that we live today. I noticed that you said study the Bible, not just read the Bible. What you're observing is that understanding the Bible confidently and contextually demands effort, right? I mean, that sort of runs against the old method of letting the Bible just fall open and then reading the first verse that comes to your attention. Well, I wouldn't try to restrict the Lord's ability to communicate to any particular person in any way he chooses, but randomly or haphazardly reading selected portions of the Bible isn't likely to help people answer the question, why am I here? I am fully persuaded that the Lord will reveal himself to anyone and everyone who seeks to truly know him. But our relationship with the Lord, and the Lord is, after all, first and foremost, a person, our relationship with the Lord is just like a relationship with anyone else in our lives. The quality of our relationship will be dependent on the quality and quantity of the time we spend with the Lord. And because the Bible was written in a different time and era, we do need to do some study on the times, the customs, and the cultures that form the setting for the Bible. And unfortunately, because so much misinformation circulates in our own culture today about the Bible, well, contemporary Christians really need to make an extra effort to arm themselves to be able to respond to that misinformation, to be able to respond to certain very common errors. Such as the erroneous assertion that Jesus wasn't a real person, that he didn't live a real life, eat, walk, and sleep like normal human beings, and that despite being fully human, He didn't also demonstrate that he was fully divine by rising out of a stone tomb after being killed by the most powerful empire on the earth at the time. So that takes us back to our review of some examples that Jesus' earthly existence is confirmed by sources outside of the Bible. Last time we took a look at two examples of other ancient historians who mentioned Jesus in their histories, the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus. Both are considered reliable historians. Both wrote their histories within a relatively short period after Jesus' earthly life. And both wrote accounts that confirm some of the details in Scripture. So, where do you want to start today? Well, let's take a look at another Roman historian, Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian and analyst in the imperial house under the emperor Hadrian. And Suetonius's writings about Christians describe their treatment under the emperor Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 AD to 54 AD. So I'm quoting Suetonius now. Because the Jews at Rome caused constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city. Talking about the city of Rome. Now this expulsion took place in 49 AD. In another work of his, Suetonius wrote about the fire that destroyed Rome in 64 AD under the reign of the Emperor Nero. Now, Nero blamed the Christians for this fire because they were a convenient target, and he punished Christians very severely, supposedly, for their causing the fire. So, again, this is what Suetonius wrote. Quote, Nero inflicted punishment on the Christians, a sect given to a new and mischievous religious belief. Unquote. So, from these quotes from Suetonius, we can see that an awareness of Jesus had spread all the way to Rome in less than 20 years after Jesus had died. 
And this awareness was so strong that the emperor himself had taken personal notice of Jesus' followers, and apparently the emperor felt the need to try to minimize the influence of those Christians in that capital city of Rome. And again, just to remind everyone of what we mentioned last time, the fact that Roman historians and even Roman emperors would take notice of Jesus is remarkable. It wasn't as if Jesus had led a conquering army that was threatening to lay siege to Rome or even one of the outlying provinces. And Suetonius's observation that the Christians had, quote, a new and mischievous religious belief, unquote, is particularly fascinating. When you think about the pantheon of gods with which the Romans were thoroughly familiar, not only their own gods, but also the Greek gods and the gods of all the people they had conquered, when you think about the vast variety of religious beliefs with which they were acquainted, What could be considered new and mischievous? Well, of course, many scholars believe that Suetonius was quite likely referring to the physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, obviously, the Romans were well familiar with various beliefs of life after death, but none of those belief systems with which they were familiar ever included a person, a flesh-and-blood man, getting up out of a grave, walking around, talking, eating, and even touching people after being crucified. For the Romans, that would have been new and novel. Still is. I've never seen it, though I thoroughly believe it happened. Who's next? Well, let's take a look at two sources who wrote about Jesus, but for whom we don't have any currently extant copies of their writings, Thallus and Phlegon. Well, if there are no existing copies of their manuscripts, how can we know what they wrote? Well, just like today, there were other writers who did read what Thallus and Phlegon wrote, and those other writers preserved some of the material by quoting it in documents that they themselves were preparing. It's just like someone may not have gone to a political event, but they can know what the speaker at the political event said by reading quotes and articles that were written by people who were there. In Thallus's case, parts of his histories were preserved by Julius Africanus, who wrote around 221 AD. In Phlegon's case, not only did Julius Africanus record some of his material, but so did Origen, who was an early church scholar and theologian. So what observation did Julius Africanus preserve from Thallus's writings that pertain to Jesus? Well, let me read a quote from Julius Africanus. This is a quote. On the world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as it appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. That's a quote from Julius Africanus' chronography in chapter 18. So, Thallus had apparently written more than one book of history, but at least in one of his books he took note of the darkness and the earthquake that accompanied Christ's crucifixion. And Thallus's record of those events parallel precisely the account that Matthew gave us in chapter 27 of his Gospel. And Luke also wrote about the darkness. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 44 through 47 say, quote, And it was now about the sixth hour, and a darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun's light failing, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man, 
So it's very interesting that a secular historian like Thallus would mention the same detail that is present in Matthew and Luke. And if I remember correctly, Thallus' observations are particularly important because many scholars believe he wrote around 52 AD. In fact, he may have been the earliest secular writer to comment on the events surrounding the crucifixion. Well, what about Phlegon? Well, let me read three quotes. The first is preserved by Julius Africanus, and the second two were preserved by Origen. Again, I'm quoting now. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth to the ninth hour. That quote was preserved by Julius Africanus. And with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified, and the great earthquakes which then took place, that was a quote preserved by Origen in his book Against Sallus in chapter 2. Another quote from Origen. Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by the nails. Again, that's another quote by Origen in his book Against Sallus from chapter 2. So we learn several things from these various quotes that we got from the material that was preserved from Phlegon. First, Phlegon confirms the darkness that was also mentioned by Matthew, Luke, and Thallus. Second, Phlegon confirms that Jesus was crucified, and he gives us a specific time reference for Jesus' crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius. And third, Phlegon confirms the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, including that Jesus showed the marks of his crucifixion to those to whom he appeared. Well, that's even more amazing, because now we know the secular historians of the 1st and 2nd century AD were not only aware of Jesus' life and ministry, but they were also familiar with many of the details that surrounded his death and resurrection. But that does pose a question. Since Julius Africanus and Origen were both admitted Christians, is it possible they fabricated the quotes they attributed to Thallus and Phlegon? Well, it's not impossible, but why would they have done that? I think critics would say they would have fabricated the quotes to make their case for the truth of Christianity stronger. Well, if they had tried to do that, in their day, it actually would have had the opposite effect. I mean, first, remember that even though copies of the writings from Thallus and Phlegon are not extant today, they certainly were in existence at the time that Julius Africanus and Origen wrote and quoted from them. If Julius Africanus and Origen had gotten it wrong, it would have been very easy for their own critics to point out their errors. Second, Africanus and Origen were writing at the time when there was substantial official opposition to Christianity. In other words, they were writing in a hostile world. So as such, Africanus and Origen would have taken even greater pains to be sure that they would not be easily subject to their material being refuted. Third, Origen's quotes of Phlegon came from a work that was entitled Contra Celsum, or in English, that's against Celsus. So Origen was writing a work to refute the claims of a figure named Celsus who had written a work entitled The True Doctrine. Well, The True Doctrine was essentially written under the authority of a Roman emperor who was critical of Christianity. So, because Origen was writing to refute a book that had been prepared under official Roman sanction, accuracy would have been absolutely essential to Origen. And most scholars do agree that Origen was a very reliable source for what Phlegon said. So, why would Origen have handed his opponents such an easy method for dismissing his criticism? 
So again, even though copies of the writings of Thallus and Phlegon don't exist today, they certainly did exist at the time that Africanus in origin prepared their original material. So if they'd gotten things wrong, it would have been very easy to push back on them to throw it back in their face. That all makes a lot of sense, and it points to a broader implication of the extra-biblical sources that you've been citing. None of the observers themselves, including Thallus or Phlegon, were friendly to Christianity. So theirs were essentially the observation of hostile witnesses. As such, when they confirm details of the biblical account, their testimony of Jesus' life has even greater weight. If they thought that Jesus was a fraud or a fabrication, it would have been easy for them not to mention him. And just one more point to note before we close. In these episodes, we certainly have not been able to cover all of the extra-biblical sources that can confirm Jesus' life, ministry, and death. There's a book called The Historical Jesus by Dr. Gary Habermas that contains a much more exhaustive treatment on this subject. And of course, there's plenty of material on the internet. So we really would encourage the listeners to end with the material that we've offered in this episode today, but let this be the starting point for them to go and do their own research to assure themselves that there is not only biblical confirmation, but there is an abundance of extra-biblical confirmation for the life of Jesus, including many of the details of his life and death. We wanted to point listeners to all these resources, including the links we put on our podcast notes, to enable them to continue their own studies about the life and ministry of Jesus. To answer the question, why am I here, we need to understand why any of us are here. Let's close with prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of the one who leads into a knowledge of truth, the Holy Spirit. A prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit. Great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father, You came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. You came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you affirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. Praise be to the one who tells us the truth about Jesus and who strengthens us against the forces of powers of wickedness that attack us in our humanity. Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom, but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading, and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. Time and time again, you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. 
finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us, and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. As of the time of production, the audio version of The Golden Tree, The Frost Lion, was not yet available for purchase. However, the printed version of The Golden Tree Trilogy is available from Amazon for your entire family or youth group to enjoy. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.